What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, a show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, Full House, Gabby Magnuson, Jake Dello, I'm forgetting everybody else's name, Kiara Mitchell, Pete McKenzie, I think that's everybody. And that's been a consistent issue. This past three weeks, this has been a consistent issue. And I'm going to have to mention it, man. Van is slowly losing his mind. I, there's a transition like once I get in the flow of the episode I'm good but in the beginning my mind is like elsewhere so I need to meditate or something before the show so the biggest news I cannot wait to share is that Trump on his Twitter timeline if you've seen it it's just the, it's like watching a person descend into madness it's gross it's frightening it's your grandpa it's all kinds of bad <laughs> things and he <laughs> Amid all of the like muck and grossness that is Trump's tweets, he had one uh, a couple days ago where he said China is he's gone out, he's gone hard in the paint on China, of course, and uh, Joe Biden. So he goes, China's on a massive disinformation campaign because they are desperate to have sleepy Joe Biden win the presidential race. And the Global Times, the Chinese mouthpiece newspaper, right? The Global Times said, on the contrary, Chinese netizens wish for your re-election because you can make America eccentric and thus hateful for the world. <laughs> you help promote unity in China, and you also make international news as fun as comedy. Chinese netizens call you Zhangguo, meaning, quote, help to construct China. And oh, then... That's so much more offensive than anything else. It's so fucking bad. Uh, so a buddy of mine who wor works for Biden, he was Biden's deputy uh, campaign deputy national security advisor, Eli Ratner. He was like, "Now we can stop arguing about who Beijing wants to win in November." Um, yeah. So the Chinese dunked on Trump like the North Koreans dunked on Trump in 2017. Like the Turks and the fucking Australians and the Brits and the French and the Canadians dunk on Trump in private. Everybody dunks on Trump. And like the, it's just that when um, your enemies with somebody, they have no problem saying the, the quiet parts out loud because like what do they have yeah. to lose, you know? And so that's what we're seeing here. America is getting no respect because of this guy. 
and now it's in the great power game between the China and the U.S., they would prefer the stooge, I think, over Biden. That's what they're saying. Uh, so that's pretty, pretty damning. I mean, the only silver lining I can see to Trump going off his meds on Twitter, we can see very clearly his talking points for the election now. You know, we're going to see Sleepy Joe Biden and this China conspiracy a hell of a lot over the next three months. No, totally. It's hilarious to read. And I feel like people forget that North Korea did this. They called him the Lion yeah. King. God, what else? He, they called him like a million different Dotard. names. Yeah, Dotard. Dotard is my favorite. <laughs> Senile old bastard. Um, they, went, they went hard on him. I don't know. This needs to be part of the history. Because Imagine being the speechwriter for these kinds of like later on later fights where you're just like, you grab a thesaurus, you look for synonyms of the word crazy and just see how many you can cram into a single tweet or speech. It would just yeah, be fantastic. Yeah. It's such an awesome opportunity to completely let loose. It would be so like much fun. <laughs> Second piece of news. So last episode I gave, or maybe two episodes ago, I don't know now, I've lost count. Uh, I gave kind of like big shout outs to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And I was like, oh, they're mainstreaming. Mm. They're mainstreaming. Well, I might have been uh, premature about that. So they, <laughs> well, it, like jury is out, I guess. They had, they have this like um, blog part of their site called Responsible Statecraft and they have people write in and, you know, they publish op-eds from people. Um, so it's not like it's a Quincy Institute position, but this, they had a guy who I actually know named Lyle Goldstein, who's a, a China watcher, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also famously like very, very soft on China, like pro-engagement. Uh, he is literally the opposite of the China hawk. Um, he's written mm. entire books about how uh, we need to avoid a security dilemma with China, et cetera, et cetera. And he's a real China hand. Like he's, the, he's one of these guys that reads the documents in Mandarin kind of thing. And mm. In this piece, he makes a, a sharper version of an argument that he's made for years. So that this came from him is not totally surprising, but it, it went further than I'd seen in the past. And he literally argues in this piece for formally abandoning Taiwan militarily to the Chinese. And he go, wow. he engages in all kinds of like egregious practices, um, like yeah. misrepresenting the Shanghai communique and claiming that it's a civil war, which is what the PRC would describe it as, right? Which means that it's nobody else's business. Mm -hmm. And he basically is willing to sacrifice Taiwan democracy in the name of kind of like maintaining stability. And so like that sounds well-intentioned, but that it is, it is sphere of influence diplomacy and imperialism when you trade off other nation states like this. So lots of problems. Well, I'm curious. In order for it to be sort of like a civil war situation, you would assume that Taiwan would have to hold the same claims on China that China hold on Taiwan, right? Do they hold those claims? Uh, it's complicated. There has been a maintenance of like a one China policy and Taiwan refers to itself, obviously, as the Republic of China. But mm. it was an uneasy status quo that we've been trying to maintain for a long time, like Taiwan is made up of um, largely, I mean, there's a huge indigenous population, but uh, made up of a lot of um, mainland Chinese who came over or fled the mainland to Taiwan when uh, the communists yeah. were like chasing them out. So it's just an unresolved legacy. 
And the U.S. has not agreed that this is part of a civil war. The One China policy is not a statement that uh, Taiwan is part of China. And Taiwan is not trying to claim the mainland. So mm. this is it's not a civil war in any except for like a rhetorical trickery sense. So this is like this is an example of like, OK, you're pushing back on the mainstream. You're pushing back on the establishment, but in a way that is not logically defensible and that's morally questionable. Um, so it's like, what what does this contribute to the debate? Um, I think it's I think it's not good to have these kinds of arguments in play because it's kind of like yeah. nothing is real, nothing matters at that point. Uh, I don't love this argument. I don't love this piece. If we abandon Taiwan militarily, it's a green light to China to resolve Taiwan militarily. That's not a progressive yeah. position. That's what Trump did with Turkey and Syria, and that's why so many Kurds got slaughtered. I think the logic is the same here, um, and that's my worry. We had a discussion last week about how the U.S. has certain positions of weakness in kind of the East Asian region, and, and Taiwan seems to be one of those. And mm. What are your thoughts about if the U.S. doesn't retrench in Taiwan, what should it do instead? So that's actually a good question, and I would like to answer it. Mm. But I think in AMA, there's a question that sounds very, very, very similar to that. Anyways, uh, this is not necessarily, you know, the Quincy Institute's position or their problem, but it's just coming from them. So maybe I was premature in all my praise. Who knows? Bad ideas are everywhere. So it's not like they would be unique in that sense. One thing I wanted to talk about that actually you guys may be more familiar with than me is mostly I just want to fucking understand it. And I feel like it's worth flagging because there's a theme here that's shared across borders. Mm. In New Zealand, fucking cell phone towers are getting lit on fire. Oh, by, <laughs> oh God. By protesters against 5G technology. So it's people who are like against 5G and it's cross that movement, which like pre-existed um, COVID-19. People in that movement are starting to they believe now that cell phone towers, even not 5G, are yeah, causing. Ones. So, like normal cell phone towers are causing the coronavirus. Is the is that is that the argument? Funnily enough, Ben, there is no real argument. Like this movement in New Zealand, anyway, is completely fabricated. These are the same people. The people that um, believe that 5G causes coronavirus are the same people that believe in every other crazy conspiracy theory. Like um, vaccines cause autism. Yeah, like those, those ones. Like yes. they're, they're, There's no power behind this because the people that do it are already known to be fucking batshit insane. It's worth so noting like, that yeah. New Zealand, like most countries, has a, a strong undercurrent of ongoing conspiracy theories. So New Zealand yeah. has, for example, concerns... Well, there's lots of New Zealanders that have concerns about um, certain governmental pest control programs such that there's oh, always a, a rump yeah. of people who vote a certain way. The reason that that's important is because coronavirus is providing this incredible opportunity that just energizes that ongoing rump of conspiracy believers such that, you know, now they're raising telephone towers and attacking strategic infrastructure in a way that is actually really worrying for national security. Yes. Okay. So there's like several things here. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like, okay, 16 fucking cell towers set ablaze as an operational issue or as a strategic issue you have to protect those fucking things it's critical infrastructure 
It's the towers that allow you to call the New Zealand equivalent of 911. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, you have to have this to have a functioning society. And it's a pattern. When you have 16 of them, it's enough of a pattern to say, oh, okay, we need to deploy nationwide to guard these things. And so this has got to be like a police law enforcement protection priority, except I suspect that there's like not enough resources in you know municipal police departments to do this. But that only leaves NZDF. And so like this is why you have this is why you have like national security personnel to deal with national security matters. Like you cannot just let this keep happening. It has to stop. But then separate from that, why are people mobilized by conspiracy theories? Like it's not just that they're consuming them and promoting them and putting the sticker on their car they're taking criminal actions based on these fucking things why is that pop i mean so this is happening in the u.s too so i'm not throwing shade at new zealand but why is this fucking happening why does new zealand consume conspiracy theories like this anyways this is fucking crazy so um shout out to the crazies i hope you're not if, if you're listening to this fucking episode and you're a conspiracy theorist fucking check yourself man please um, <laughs> yeah. last just stop <laughs> last piece of news Senator Josh Hawley, who's a Trump ass-kissing MAGA guy, he gave a foreign policy speech just a couple days ago where he declared passionately, a passionate foreign policy speech, that we have to rip up the existing international order and end free trade, like explicitly that argument, in order to avoid becoming second place to the, quote, imperialists in Beijing. So I'm totally on board with somebody recognizing that China is an imperialist power. I did not think it would be the fucking Republicans in Congress. So, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this, but it's notable that the Republican Party, prominent people are officially giving impassioned speeches that are anti-free trade. The world has turned, man. Something has changed here worth flagging. I think it's a particularly a really good example of just how fundamentally the parties have reshaped themselves. So this is like, it's it's a very good final confirmation of the realignment of American politics along policy issues. Mm. So we're seeing a populist party versus a party of globalized free trade to some extent. Yeah, if you want to if you want to be like actually yeah. free trade, you're more likely to find a home in the Democratic Party these days. But Democrats, especially the actual progressives, are not for free trade. Like, they're still, like Sanders and Warren are still against the Trans-Pacific Partnership to this day. I mean, nobody is against trade, but for the left in the U.S., for the Democratic Party who's not establishment, the only way that you can pursue trade agreements is if the terms of the agreements have a reasonable expectation of not making inequality, like, dramatically worse, Right. Like the distribution of benefits doesn't just accumulate up at the top. And it's hard to do that. It's like it's hard to negotiate that and get other, you know, countries to agree. So like free trade doesn't have a, a reliable home right now in American politics. But I think it's more so in the Democratic Party, probably than the GOP. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. For prediction market this week, first question, will we see an armed conflict between Israel and Jordan before July? So I'm going to say no, only because, I don't know, like war is an infrequent phenomenon and July is happening quite soon. 
but mm -hmm. in case you've missed it or like maybe this is where you got the question from i once again i forgot to look at prediction market um <laughs> the thing is i know that like i can give the most honest answer if i'm not prepared for it so like yeah. i use yeah. i use That's that like <laughs> i use that as an excuse to like maybe look at like one question or something i don't know but i saw an article about the king of jordan warning that israel that's yep, up like if israel continues annexation jordan like all options are on the table i forget how it was exactly phrased but it was like uh, war exactly, was implied exactly that jordan warns israel of massive conflict over escalation he uh king of buddha the second says jordan's considering all options over israel's plan to annex parts of the west bank yeah so like when u.s uh officials say all options are on the table it's meant to like imply force, but then actually it's just sanctions or like a, a sternly worded letter. Um, okay. But when other other countries don't have like sanctions as a tool the way the U.S. does, so I'm guessing that Jordan really does mean military force. Um, I would just yeah. say not not by July. Okay. Well, that's sort of optimistic, I guess. <laughs> like not not by July. Question two. Will there be any further economic reprisals from China to its former economic allies before August, following the recent tariff increase on Australian barley? 80 cents. Fucking massive. Oh, so you mean by like former economic allies, you mean like uh, trade well, partners? Anyone that, yeah, yeah, trade partners. That's right. I've noticed Kiwis, I, I was talking to my class about this yesterday. Kiwis refer, they call people allies who are just partners or friends. And okay. in like the U.S., the U.S. like the Washington mindset, allies are countries that you are willing to go to war to defend, and so it's like a very different thing. But it's so common here that like maybe I'm the wrong one. I don't know. Will there be any more economic uh, tariffs or sanctions from, from China, China to its former trade partners? I think so. By by August, you said. Uh yeah, August. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Partly because the um, Taiwan, the competition over Taiwan is like bizarrely heating up. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think. But the Australians are, I think, possibly going to be subject to even more Chinese sanctions uh, or tariffs beyond what uh, China's already imposed on fucking barley. And it's, mm. it's just a matter of time. So I'm going to say, yeah. Question three. I know this is a little bit old news, but it's still pretty relevant anyway. Following the abandonment of the Open Skies Treaty by the Trump administration, well, the official abandonment anyway, mm. will any other of the 33 countries that are a part of the agreement follow suit by August? Now, just a caveat, it's either 33 or 34 countries that are also part of the Open Skies Treaty with the United States. Yeah, it's, in the, it's in the dozens. Right. Uh, I don't think anybody else is going to walk away because nobody else is that fucking stupid and selfish. This is a layup. This is low-hanging fruit treaty. This is no, there's, the downside is de minimis and the upside is dramatic. Uh, it's a, it's an indicator and warning for war and for crisis stability. Uh, it's a confidence-building measure. It's a part of a layered uh, and reinforcement of an of larger arms control regimes like no brainer and of course we walked away from it somebody was asking me today like why would the u.s walk away from the open skies treaty like what's the logic what's what's even the theory of the case and it yeah. is it is very much that this administration believes that arms racing equals national security 
They believe that arms racing is how you secure America because of America's unique productive capacity to build arms, to out arms race everybody. And you can't trust anybody else. So like, that's the way. So it's horrible, but I don't think anyone else will walk away. I think this is an America Russia thing. Okay. Well, cause that, that was like the thing I sort of, when I read into these things, just like below your nuclear weapons, it just seems like the Trump administration wants nothing more than to get the whole world to finally distrust them as yeah. much as they can, like remove all the nuclear trust that was built up over the past 20 years. I mean, what better way is there to deconstruct the international order as it is, as Senator Josh Hawley says, we must right? like the, the project of order destruction rather than order building. It's not easy to do if you're rational, but it's very easy to do if you just want to take a sledgehammer to the entire architecture. And they're, they're doing that treaty by treaty, just going down the line. So, fuck. This is one of the things. So for all of Biden's flaws, this is one of the things that will mm. restore hope because actually, like, he will bring the United States back into all of these things that he can do within his power. And so Paris Climate Accords, check. JCPOA, you know, the Iran nuclear deal 2.0, check. Open Skies Treaty, check. New Start. Depends on where we are, but probably check, right? Like he supports all of these things because he's not a psychopath. It's arms control as just do opposite of what Trump did. And yeah. so it's pretty simple. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Okay, so uh, two quick tweets from me. One is from Corey Pine, who's actually a friend of the pod by now. He is retweeting, making a comment on something that I said. Um, so I was talking about how Quincy Institute had started going hard in the paint on H.R. McMaster because he's a, an uber hawk, but he's also considered like one of the adults in the room in the Trump administration. So like he gets feted by the establishment and like he gets invited to all the cocktail parties and stuff. Like he's a normal member of the policy elite, but he actually has like pretty like hardcore, you know, militarist policy preferences. And so I was like, you know, HR McMaster has not been treated um, fairly. He's been treated biasly. Like he's been given a pass by the establishment. Like people aren't judging his record honestly. And so Corey Pine responded to that and he was just like, McMaster during the Bush period. Meet this hotshot maverick rising star officer who's going to turn things around in the glorious global war on terror, which obviously didn't go well. Um, McMaster during the Trump period. Meet the hotshot seasoned veteran who's going to temper the emperor's more impulsive and extreme instincts. So basically, Corey is highlighting McMaster's life, his career has benefited from the expectation that he's going to be this guy who's going to help solve America's national security problems, and he's done nothing of the kind, and yet he still keeps getting the cocktail party invitations anyway. Um, so shout out to Corey Pine. And then Vipin Narang, my buddy, professor at MIT, nuke guy. Um, so Matt Kronig is, he's part of the nuclear community, but he's a nuclear uber hawk. Um, okay. We've, uh, I've, I've thrown shade at him in the podcast before because he deserved it. <laughs> and so he's, he said for decades, U.S. policymakers feared the day that China would try to, quote, sprint to parity and build a superpower nuclear arsenal. That day has come, according to Chinese media, 
because Chinese uh, Global Times published a piece, an op-ed, saying that China needs to increase its nuclear warheads to 1,000, which is a dramatic jump. And so this is the first time we've seen that kind of argument um, publicly in print. Um, It's in the state media, you know, mouthpiece newspaper. And Vipin Narang, who is kind of like a, you know, friendly nemesis of Matt Kronig, he says... You say you want China to be part of a trilateral superpower arms control regime, talking about the Trump administration. So maybe some Chinese think they should build a superpower size arsenal before that, even though they've refrained for decades. Don't like editorials like this? Extend New Start and then address China separately. So he's getting at the the Trump administration. I feel like we've talked about this at least once before, but. Um, the State Department Arms Control Bureau has decided that they're going to try to like have a superpower summit with Russia and China and bring China into the New START arrangement with Russia. But they're holding the New START agreement extension at risk. So they're playing this big gamble that's actually just, I think it's basically designed to kill arms control because China will not join New START. China is not going to enter. Nobody's going to enter an arms control agreement with the U.S. when Trump is in charge, first of all. Like, it's not mm. it's not credible. You're not going to get any kind of real deal. Like, the U.S. will not be faithful to it. It's, it's Chinese nuclear strategists who are looking at Trump administration policies and saying, well, given the risks and instability here, given uh, the U.S. spending a trillion dollars on nuclear modernization— we need to massively ramp up our investments in nuclear warheads ourselves. And so it's the U.S. who is driving China to pursue this. But um, I've talked to other Chinese nuclear strategists, or I've talked to one other Chinese nuclear strategist in recent days, and he was saying this is not a consensus view in China. This is actually like a pretty fringy, this is the first time literally that this view has been expressed. So. The Trump administration's actions are responsible for this existing in the discourse. Like this is a legitimate idea to have now in China, but it's not like Chinese policy. So it, that's that's pressure in a destabilizing way, and the Trump administration is at fault. But China's not saying that it's going to actually do this, and it's a huge strategic decision and a huge bill to pay to decide to build a thousand nuclear warheads. Even so, like it's the US who is pushing them in that direction. So if we don't like this, we need to work on arms control with China separate from some superpower trilateral arrangement with Russia, which will never work. So shout out to Vipin. Cool. So my first tweet of the week comes from Walid Shaheed, who is the founder of the Justice Democrats. Uh, In his tweet, he attached two screenshots from news headlines. The first reads, In Oklahoma, Obama declares pipeline support, which is an article from a few years ago. The second screenshot reads, Biden White House would yank Keystone XL permit. To these, Shahid says, the Democratic Party has fundamentally changed on climate change since the Obama presidency, thanks to progressive, indigenous, and climate activists. Yeah, it's broad. It's so it's broadly correct. I think Biden has spent his career going back and forth between being a centrist and being more progressive, and it's or being outright conservative, and it has very much depended on what is like politically popular to do at that time. And so, like, what else would you expect from a good politician than to do what's popular, right? That maybe that's not the best thing to do, but that is that is definitely shows that you're a smart politician. And so what's popular 
in since the Obama era, like one of the reasons why people feared a Biden presidency on the left was that like he was just going to go back to Obama 2.0, like literally just repeat Obama and Obama's positions. They were left of center on most things. He was progressive ish on climate change, but he had he had specific policies like the decision on uh, the Keystone Pipeline where it's like, well, actually, that's not very progressive, is it? And, you know, the fucking endless drone wars. And he, he made a lot of decisions that in the end were not progressive. And yet people still saw him as this very left of center guy. Um, and now, all just in the past four years, the things that Obama did as presidency, as president, are considered like almost right wing or like centrist to the Democrats. <laughs> and that's part of the like, polarization is so extreme that it's not like Republicans are taking those views. They don't they don't, you know, have positions that Obama had. But Obama's positions are positions that are outdated, outmoded now in the Democratic Party. So the Democratic mm. Party has totally moved left on most issues. The idea, even the idea of endless war, that is a, a prominent idea that everybody almost almost everybody accepts. And I remember three years ago, we were like, is this a thing? We like we get the underlying problems with the Afghanistan war and presence in Iraq, but um, endless wars like is that is that what we're going to campaign on and it was a huge debate for a little while and then it became mainstream and he Walid Shahid is pointing out to how we've changed on climate policy and so like I think having Sanders in the race having justice Democrats get elected in 2018 and having Warren being a champion of a lot of these ideas but from a more like center-left position all of that has moved the party left, like the Overton window for what it means to be progressive has totally moved left. Um, and justice Democrats yeah. are like pretty responsible for that, like more so than anybody other than maybe Sanders. That's well, sad. that's probably one of the best, best things to come out of uh, this past cycle was the move economically anyway towards the left wing from the Democrat. Yeah, I'm, I'm very like the justice Democrats make me happy because are hopeful because it's they are truth to power guys they are yeah. representing actual values that happen to also be strategic winners of ideas like and so and the the fact that they can win campaigns on these genuinely progressive genuinely left ideas is very heartening to me so um shout out to Walid. Well, see, now we're going from we're going from him into this next tweet, and it's like, good fucking God. So our second tweet of the week comes from an unusual source. So the tweet reads, the firings of multiple inspectors general is unprecedented. Doing so without good cause chills the independence essential to their purpose. It is a threat to accountable democracy and a fissure in the constitutional balance of power. And do you guys know who that came from? One Senator Mitt Romney. Mitting Jesus Romney. Christ. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, he's the only he's the only Republican senator who made any kind of serious fuss about this. All the mo so most GOP right now are concerned about Trump firing multiple inspectors general, especially the State Department inspector general. It's one of the ways you check power. It's their job. Their only job is to make sure that our agencies are obeying the law 
that they're not functioning corruptly. So to fire them is quite a signal about where you're going in terms of unaccountability to the people, to the Congress. Congress as an institution is concerned. The GOP is concerned, but not really voicing it. So the House Democrats are saying this is unacceptable. Pompeo needs to reinstate this inspector general fucking immediately. We're going to have hearings. We're going to hold these fucks to account. I don't know that they'll succeed. I sure, I sure hope so. Um, but Romney is the only guy. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to give him too much credit here, but because he's not a friend of the pod. But <laughs> he's, he's the only fucking Republican who is 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 vocal about the danger of what's happening here. He sees the slide into fascism, into authoritarianism, um, and he wants to do something to stop it. But if he's like the lone guy with a sort of moral voice in, in yeah. the Republican Party, it's all fucked, man. Most, well, most Republican senators have a conscience. It's just that Mitt Romney is the only one that has a voice. And it's a pity that he also doesn't have guts to actually throw some shit and start causing problems to force the reversion of these kinds of crazy moves like the firing of inspectors general. He would be much more influential if he took, if he like basically had a podcast and then used his bane millions of dollars to fund political action community community committees to take down um, Trumpist candidates, to take down Trump, yeah. to push back on MAGA. Right. He could, he could fucking buy enough shares in Facebook to make it anti MAGA. You know? I mean, like and all that would be so much more influential than being a U.S. Senator who fucking tweets, you know, <laughs> I know you said Mitt's not a friend of the pod van, but this is the second time we've talked positively about something. <laughs> I mean, down is up. I'll say that. Down is up. So who knows? Um, I like to spice things up here on the pod. Yeah. And tech, I mean, technically, it's not as as overtly progressive as the show ends up being and as overtly progressive as I am. It's It's kind of a nonpartisan show. I don't know if that... Maybe maybe that's a lie. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I try to just embrace good takes, you know. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Okay, so our piece for Armchair Analysis this week is from The Atlantic. I think it's the first time we've had a Atlantic piece on the show, and it's suitably a follow-up to our Taiwan discussion. And it's titled, Is This Taiwan's Moment? And it's by staff writer, I think, Timothy McLaughlin. And essentially, it lays out the extent of Taiwan's recent diplomatic offensive. So White House officials have been wearing masks that were made in Taiwan. They've been providing this kind of massive medical equipment to states like the United um, States, which has been incredibly effective at winning goodwill around the world. There have been a remarkable success story to a large degree, at controlling COVID-19, despite being so close to the Chinese mainland. And they've also done things outside of COVID-19 entirely, like calling on Beijing correspondents for major American media outlets like the New York Times to relocate to Taipei when they were expelled by the Chinese government. And so this kind of diplomatic offensive has been really effective. It's led to a host of countries calling for Taiwan to participate albeit as an observer, in international institutions like the World Health Organization, which have up until now followed um, China's mainland China's will and have excluded them. Um, for example, New Zealand has taken, surprisingly, uh, a leading role in that kind of coalition calling for recognition of Taiwan, mm. at, at least as a, in an observer role. 
And China, mainland China, is putting pressure on these countries as a result. So it's a really interesting kind of climax to this ongoing simmering dispute between China and Taiwan. And it would be great, Ben, to, to hear what your thoughts are on whether or not this is an indication that the tide is turning in some way or that Taiwan is really kind of building up steam in its kind of efforts. Yeah, I mean, so the title of the piece, Is This Taiwan's Moment? That's the right question. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that we're Taiwan has momentum right now, which is a little bit surprising because it seemed like as recently as last year, the Trump administration was moving closer to Taiwan as a way to give the middle finger to China. But it was like nobody else seemed to be like Taiwan was losing presence in regional fora and international fora. Several Pacific Island nations were making decisions in deference to China that was cutting off Taiwan more and more. And now all of a sudden with COVID-19, things have changed quite a bit, but it seems like it's a lot of it is reacting to negatively to China. And so Taiwan, you know, they're playing whatever hand they have reasonably well so far. I think it's like a curse and a blessing to have the U.S. on your side under these conditions. The U.S. as ally is basically like having the schoolyard bully on your side. And that is that can be dangerous. The bully can spark fights as much as defend you, you know. And it's not like we we hinted at this in uh, the opening conversation about the Quincy Institute piece, but like the balance of power in the Straits have shifted in favor of, of Beijing a long time ago. Like America, it's so close to mainland China and it's so far from most of America's military capabilities that America's ability, America cannot, if, if a war happened right now, establish air superiority. Air superiority is like the only way we know how to fight. Like when you think about Afghanistan and Iraq, it's predator drones overhead 24 seven. Tomahawk missiles, taking out bases and taking out terrorists. Like the, it, we need air superiority, and to have that capturing the high ground for uh, intelligence purposes, for surveillance purposes, and for targeting purposes. And without that, troops on the ground are at much greater risk. And yet, we cannot establish air superiority so close to Chinese surface-to-air missile sites, so close to the mainland, and so far from yeah. us right? Impossible. So we have to fight differently. And we have subs, we have surface and subsurface like maritime problems too, because of how close China is. So we have huge problems, the ability for China to launch um, an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. I don't know that we could stop it. The way, the only way we could stop it is the way we stopped like the North Koreans in 1950, where it's like North Korea basically took over 95% of South Korea and then we threw a Hail Mary um, amphibious landing on its South on South Korea's western coast. We cut off their supply lines and eventually forced a reversal. But it was like the bloodiest fucking thing ever, you know, except for World War Two, I guess. But it was at tremendous cost and there were no nuclear weapons in the picture. So if that situation were to play out again, it's like would we actually send amphibious forces to stop or halt or reverse a Chinese amphibious invasion of Taiwan when both sides have conventional precision munitions, right? So like standoff missiles. And um, China has local military superiority 
we can't establish air any kind of like air control air superiority and both sides have fucking nukes man so like that is an unwinnable situation for us um it's it the cost versus the best that we could get is repelling china from taiwan but not even permanently resolving the issue and the cost that you have to pay to get that it's so fucking high militarily this is not not winnable and so our military planners need to think about what capabilities we might need to invest in how we fight needs to change because the traditional way we fight won't fucking work but i forgot why i went onto a military tangent sorry this is about taiwan right <laughs> well, before you jump into taiwan real quickly so do you think it, there's no possible like based I don't know. So for every other Taiwan Strait crisis, for example, right, U.S. has always managed to kind of come out of top. Well, the 96 crisis was the last real crisis, but nothing happened. Yeah. It was the Chinese tested missiles. It was sending a very indirect signal to Taiwan and to the U.S. And then the U.S. sent carrier aircraft carriers to the region, but not up mm -hmm. to the Taiwan Straits. It was just into the region. All oh, right. Putting yeah. the fucking putting your gang in the neighborhood, but not near the house <laughs> of the guy you're trying to whack. It, you know that's not going to do anything. And so that's as far as it went in '96. And then the last crisis before that was back in, decades earlier, um, when precision standoff weapons and nuclear weapons were just not not a major feature in the strategic relationship. The conflict in the past crises, like the old ass crises were over basically disputed islands. It wasn't over the Taiwan mainland contested directly. So like the military conflict that America is preparing for and that China is preparing for is about capturing the mainland. And that's not winnable. And so my concern, the, to circle back, like linking the military shit to all this, this larger question about <laughs> Taiwan support, the Taiwans are being very bold right now. And that is coming at the cost of uh, relations with China. But China's also being like very heavy handed. And internationally, China is trying to encircle Taiwan. And so Taiwan's basically just pushing back and not backing down. And there's a risk. Democracies should be on Taiwan's side. The problem is that when resolve meets resolve and like China has staked its existence on being able to like take back Taiwan by force if necessary, you're in an that's an irreducible conflict of interests at that point. And I don't know that the democratic world is prepared for a conflict militarily that it cannot win. And so like China probably doesn't want to invade Taiwan. Right. But if it has to, I think it will. I think its resolve is probably superior to um, democracies around the world, particularly the U.S. right now. So uh, I'm concerned that Taiwan being bolder and bolder or like if Taiwan, if Tsai Ing-wen decides to like declare independence or something like she knows what she's doing. She knows this game, the risk that she's playing. Um, and I'm concerned that China will be goaded into doing something militarily that we will have to protect Taiwan for. All of this comes from everybody departing from the status quo. So the uneasy status quo between China and Taiwan and the one China policy that the U.S. had. That was keeping the peace, man. And uh, if we can't go back to that, I don't think there is a resolution to be had here except for war, because I don't see Taiwan voluntarily, you know, becoming part of mainland China. History is speeding up. Geopolitics is playing rainbow road. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to bump off and fall off, yeah. Yeah.
So mm-hmm. it's it's great. I mean, like I want Taiwan to be part of international institutions. I want them to be like a normalized member of international society, and democracies should stand with Taiwan. I've said that like every fucking week on this show. I just uh, I'm concerned that democracies are making commitments here that embolden Taiwan without thinking through these sort of military implications uh, or the military potential consequences because China's not fucking around. Like, they will use force on Taiwan if they have to, and they're getting closer to having to. That's my fear. So Taiwan's moment is also China's last chance. You know what I mean? And that's it feels like that's where we're building the crescendo to. So duck and cover, man. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So the first question this week is from Mark Camarata, a friend of the pod. You said on Twitter that what the U.S. decides on Taiwan matters, but also that preventing a Chinese invasion of Taiwan doesn't require military dominance. Can you talk about that? Yes. So this is the thing that Pete brought up earlier and I, I hijacked armchair analysis to talk about it a little bit. So um, I gave you all the reasons before why we cannot win uh, in Taiwan in the traditional way that we would fight. Um, so there has to be a better way. And the question is, is there a better way? I think there is. I think that if we're serious about planning for a military conflict in Taiwan, we have to get Taiwan to invest in anti-access area denial capabilities way more than it is now. We need them to take civil society cohesion seriously and have the will to fight for more than 24 hours without reinforcements. We need to not have them spending their precious defense dollars on things like F-16s, which are basically wasted money when China can establish air superiority. And we need to the, the, the space where the U.S. can play in preparations other than arming Taiwan properly is stuff that, like, up to this point, we've sort of thought of as crazy, putting a contingent of U.S. Marines in Taiwan, right? Creating basically, like, a tripwire force, but also a tripwire force that would be useful mm-hmm. in fighting back in the event of a Chinese amphibious invasion. So there are things that we can do if we have different concepts for how we fight or spreading out the conflict horizontally, China moves on Taiwan, we move on more weakly defended islands that are part of Chinese territory or we act against China in the South China Sea. There are risks to everything in a military um, box, in a military context. But what we know is definitely not going to work is the traditional war fighting playbook when it's in your enemy's neighborhood and not yours. You're far away from home. You're the away team. So you have to do it differently. Horizontal escalation is one way of doing it differently. Um, Putting in local forces is one way of doing it differently. Building a Taiwan kind of A2AD force is doing it differently. And that is how we can, I don't know if you call it winning, but that's how we can avoid losing Taiwan. Like the whole goal here is not to end the CCP or like nuclear, like annihilate China, it's just to preserve Taiwanese democracy. Like we're trying to protect a democracy. That's that's like we can't lose sight of that goal. Um, and it's just a question of how we do it. So, yeah, I just don't think the traditional military dominance way of war is going to work. So the second question is from Anonymous. 
What do you think about the National Interest magazine? Did you hear about their recent scandal? Oh my God. So I don't know if you guys, I, I linked to the Twitter thing about this on, on our yeah, prep for Slack. <laughs> it's fucking nutty. So I've published at the National Interest many times. I know one of the editors there. And so it's like, you don't want to burn bridges, but you know, I'm being asked this question. So I'm just going to answer honestly. The National Interest is very open intellectually. Like they'll publish op-eds from any, any type of perspective. The thing that I had heard rumors of before was that when they pay people to write, they can be like very slow or delinquent on payments. And um, that's pretty shitty. They're, they wouldn't be unique in that way, but like they're uniquely mm. bad apparently. And so one of their former j bloggers or journalists who's been in the business for like 20 years, um, he went public spilling the beans about his feud with the national interest. He quit because they were slow rolling his, his payments, but it was like a larger set of practices because he also accused them of um, copyright theft, like taking pictures from other websites and using them unauthorized on their articles, which is illegal. Um, and he, yeah. sa he says it's like a rampant practice and the headlines that they write often have nothing to do with the content of the article. It's just clickbait headlines, and they do it all the time. It's kind of true from what I've seen. It sounds very toxic. It's very scandalous. But they're also like one of the major outlets that people go to publish their foreign policy-related op-eds. So like, there's kind of like a hierarchy of places where you would want to publish if you wrote an op-ed about foreign policy. And they're on mm -hmm. the list of that that hierarchy of places you would want to publish. Like they're not a, they're not the number one spot or whatever, but they're on the list. And so the only question is like, do you want to publish and get compensated? If you want to get compensated, yeah, maybe you want to publish it somewhere else, <laughs> or you're taking a risk, maybe. That's sad. Yeah, yeah. like that's, that's just yeah. being screwed over the writers. That's too bad. Because I know David X is very reputable. He does some really good work. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got a new position writing for Forbes or something like that already. So he's moved on. So the third and final question is from Nisha Tate. Does it matter that Joe Rogan's podcast is moving to Spotify exclusively? That can't be the real Nisha Tate, right? Oh, surely the UFC not. fighter? I, yeah, yeah, surely not. Probably not. Let's, let's assume If not. you are, if you are, <laughs> tweet at us. That would be said. sweet. Yeah, Misha Tate, if you're the Misha Tate, uh, show us some love. So Joe Rogan's podcast. I, you know, it might be because Joe Rogan, I mean, Joe Rogan's in the fight world. He's a UFC commentator. So like this is her. Dude, is this fucking Misha Tate for real? Well, I'll that's sort of what I was thinking as soon as I email. saw the question, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back to the email, maybe. Um, so I just saw news that Joe Rogan signed a deal with Spotify and so it, his podcast is going to be free, but it's only going to be available there and not not on yeah. iTunes or anywhere else. And they're paying him. It's it's over several years, but it's a one hundred million dollar deal. Yeah, Jesus. you you could Spotify. not guess how much World Politics Review pays us, <laughs> but it ain't a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Two hundred million. <laughs> So I don't think it matters. Who cares? This matters in one indirect way, which is that like there is a battle. This is how capitalism works now. Large companies seek monopoly power. 
And monopoly power is anti-capitalist, ironically. It's almost universally undemocratic, um, not that corporations are democracies. But it tends to, like, monopolies tend to be very bad for society. And the podcasting game is like any other where big firms are trying to get market share from everybody else. And so there's only one reason you would, you would pay somebody $100 million for their podcast. And you're not even buying the podcast. You're buying the exclusive yeah. distribution rights. So, like, Joe Rogan, I saw a statement about this. He was like... I'm not working for Spotify. They're not my employer. This this is a distribution deal only. So he still owns the copyright to all of his content. He just is agreeing not to distribute it uh, except through Spotify. And so you would only pay $100 million for that fucking garbage show, which I listen to sometimes, <laughs> if you're trying to buy market share so that you can set the terms of competition against your competitors. You can take over the ad market, right? And so it's a long-term play for monopoly. And that is the concern, but it's not like unique to Spotify. Like every big company does this. This is the pissing contest between like Google and Apple and Facebook. This happens all the time now. And you would think that there would be more regulation of this kind of competition since we're all like victims of whatever happens, but uh, it just is what it is. Well, funnily enough, with Spotify, like if you wanted to really squeeze something sort of geopolitical out of this, uh, Spotify have bought up the majority of the large podcasts in the United States away from American-owned companies because Spotify is Swedish. Yeah. So I mean, if you wanted, if you're looking for a nefarious geopolitical outlet, maybe that's one. We need to maybe. decouple from Sweden. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe Sweden's, Sweden's just trying to steal the podcast. After all, we are Kiwis. We're conspiracy theorists at heart. Oh, my God. So. It's interesting news. I don't know that it means anything. But if you are Misha Tate, please. Oh, yeah. Misha us. Tate, if this is you, let us know. All right, gang, that's going to do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for the World Politics Review newsletter, baby. And buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic we've been getting coffees um, out the ass lately and so thanks for that peace